what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Hello, and welcome to the Caregiver Community. This is a place where we talk about the joys and the challenges of caring for our aging parents and for ourselves. I am Frances Hall, co-founder and executive director of ACAP Community, and I'm here with my co-host for this podcast, Susan Saylor, who is the owner of Home Instead Senior Care in Hickory, North Carolina. Hi, Susan. How are you? Hey, it's nice to see you again. You do. Susan and I are two of the estimated 10 million adults in the United States and many more millions worldwide who are or have been adult children who've cared for their aging parents. In this podcast, we are talking about what adult children should know when mom and dad go to the hospital, an event that happens typically for most elders at some point and a time that is stressful for everyone. Been there, done that. There were so many times I wished I had known more when my mother was at the hospital and certainly when she was being discharged. And I've heard similar confusion, frustration, and fear echoed over and over by adult children and other loved ones of elders. So what do we need to know in order to be our parents or loved ones' best support and advocate, particularly during and after hospitalization? What needs to be in place so their wishes will be respected in the hospital? And what needs to be in place to best care for an elder when they come home? In other words, what do we need to know, hopefully, before we need to know it? Our guest today is Janelle Fields. Janelle is the Transitions of Care Manager at Catawba Valley Medical Center in Hickory, North Carolina. She is a registered nurse and is working on a Master's in Care Coordination. She also understands what it is to be an adult child caring for an aging parent in that she was the adult child caregiver for her mother-in-law before her mother-in-law moved to one of her daughter's homes about two and a half years ago, and she just has told us about her father and and a situation she's dealing with with her father and, and an aging parent. Janelle, welcome to the caregiver community. We are delighted to have you with us. Thank you. Janelle, I'm going to start with questions um, today. I, you've said that long before an aging parent or loved one goes to the hospital, we need to communicate, communicate, communicate. So what do you mean by that? Well, it's true. Communication is the key. Out of all the barriers we have that face us in healthcare, specifically within case management, is communication. When families face stressful situations, interpersonal dynamics of the family also intensify. Mm. So if a family takes time to have those discussions around topics like hospitalization, long-term care, advanced directives, before a stressful situation actively occurs, that that preemptive approach is really the key. So granted, there's always situations that can arise, a planned surgery that maybe is more complex or an unexpected fall. But if the family invests in the harder discussions preemptively, it makes managing the family dynamics and the communication in the healthcare setting so much easier. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great segue to the, to my next question, which is that we know that getting everything in order really makes a lot of a lot of difference. Um, but from the hospital standpoint, who makes decisions if patient if the patient is unable to? What paperwork is needed for the hospital to follow someone's wishes? 
And talk in this age of blended families and disjointed families, what happens when there is a disagreement among family members about the care and what needs to happen? Exactly. Um, so there, there are different things, guardianship, health care, power of attorney, um, living wills. But the decisions that are faced with families and individuals when they're in the healthcare setting, there isn't a cookie cutter answer for that because it really bases on the situation and what information they have, what documents they may have. But from a practical standpoint, the guardian is the first person that's looked to, then the healthcare power of attorney or the next of kin. And the next of kin could be a spouse, parent, a child over 18. And in some instances where you have, um, at a, at a re- recent conference I attended, I believe they called it the aging orphans. Oh, yes. Um, aging yes. individuals that don't have family members. Sometimes it's an established individual that has a relationship when there's no other dependents mm-hmm. there to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially in light of blended families and dynamics that we see today in healthcare, it comes back to the answer from the first question. Having those discussions preemptively and being able to openly talk about who makes those decisions and who has the ability to make those decisions so that it can get communicated clearly. We've just gone through a hospitalization with my husband mm-hmm. that that had some real serious pieces of it. Mm-hmm. And the hospital was very intent on wanting the pieces of paper signed. Are there is that typical that they really want to see legal documents or their pieces of paper signed? Yes, it is typical. And that is both from a policy standpoint that individual hospitals have, but there's also regulatory um, issues behind that. So Joint Commission is an accreditation that a lot of hospitals have. They require, for example, that we have that conversation with every individual, whether or not they have a power of attorney or a living will, and then we make an attempt to get a copy of that document. So we have to comply with that from a regulatory standpoint for our accreditation, but also so that we have those guidelines and that framework there so we don't have to invest energy in deciding who's making what decisions when the time comes where a decision has to be made and the individual can't. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Well, Janelle, why is it important for family members to know their loved one's health history? And, uh, and what is it exactly that families do need to know? Well, oftentimes a family member is the one that's looked to in a medical crisis for that information. Um, today we have challenges with care coordination, with communication between healthcare settings, and that's due to a multitude of factors. We have healthcare fragmentation, we have specialists, we have primary care, we have a vast array of physicians that are providers that we can go to. Then we have issues of insurance regulations, we have privacy. Um, rules and regulations. We have quality measures that tell us how and in which way we're going to share medical information, the electronic health record. So all of those present barriers and challenges, mm-hmm. and it's sometimes difficult to get that medical record right from a primary care provider. So if an individual has their health history, if the family is well-versed in that health history, it makes an acute care uh, episode much smoother. Makes it easier for it decisions does. to be it made. Does. Mm-hmm. That's really hard um, 
because being an advocate for a parent when you can't get that information makes it more frustrating as, at times, too. You really do have to push sometimes. You do. And I think that it's um, a little disconcerting. You hear patients have uh, portal access. They may have access yeah. to their record and the primary care. Um, but that's not always easy to navigate. Mm-hmm. Um, it, even though you have access, it doesn't mean they're putting medical information into a layperson's hands. And so being able to interpret what that means, having somebody else have access to it, how the whole portal's designed. Is it designed for the age group that's actually looking at it? My mother and father have access to their health care portal, but oftentimes they will look to me to be the one to decipher what that information is. Because from a regulatory standpoint, we have to be able, healthcare has to supply that information to you as a patient in a private, secure method. But once you get it, what does that mean? Right. Because it also has to be provided in a very professional way. Exactly. So hence the terminology is going to be very... Exactly. A lot of facilities have a document called the patient health summary that you can get at discharge that is uh, a layman's interpretation of everything that happened during that event, um, that hospitalization. it could be 20, it could be 30 pages long. It has information on it that can be unbelievably overwhelming. So being able to also read that and then communicate it to the next level of care for a layperson is very challenging too and what they may interpret. I'll give you an example. My mother called me in um, when my dad was recently hospitalized and she said, something's happened um, almost verbatim. He has a pick line. What does that mean? His heart is like a hummingbird. Okay, <laughs> to, a, to, a, <laughs> to a nurse, being able to figure out what they had meant, um, it, it, it can be very confusing when somebody that's non-medical is interpreting information that they get. Um, and again, that's just another facet and another challenge. So if you have your healthcare information, um, at least maybe it's a copy of it, um, Somebody that attends your visits with you, your doctor's appointments with you. When, when you go to a physician and you see a provider, you're listening as the patient. Having another set of ears there is very helpful. Um, Absolutely. I agree. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, but when we're talking about health history and health information, mm-hmm. so let's be specific then. Um, what, what family members need to know is... What did granddad and grandma die of, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of medicines are they on? Most important things, I would say, is who are their providers? Okay. Who do they see? Do they have a primary <laughs> care provider? Do they also have somebody they see for their heart or their lungs? Do they see somebody, if, if they come in for maybe a knee replacement, do you know if they have another physician that they see or does their doctor um, primary care No. And what medications are prescribed to them? Versus what medications do they take? Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. That's very different oh, yes. as well. As well as vitamins and supplements exactly. and all that? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Just wanted to be, just wanted to be clear. Mm-hmm. I think that, that those would, yeah. be, those would okay. be the most important. Okay. okay. Great. Great. Um, there's lots of confusion. We've been talking about going to the hospital. But, oh, my goodness, there's lots of confusion about an admission versus under observation, inpatient, outpatient, emergency department care, all of that. Um, how about being our dictionary? <laughs> For those of us who are the lay people trying to understand this, tell us what each of these means and when it would be decided, when a doctor would decide to do one or the other. 
Um, I don't know if I can be your exact dictionary, <laughs> but what I can tell you is that it, again, is very complex. I think what's important for caregivers and patients to know is that there is varying levels of hospitalization, understanding that. And just because you're at the hospital staying overnight doesn't necessarily mean you're inpatient. Okay. Talk wow. more. So you can be an inpatient, or you could be there in an observation status. Maybe you come in for an outpatient procedure, but because of your age or any complex medical history, they decide to keep you overnight. You may still be a same-day surgery or an outpatient, even though you've stayed overnight. So your clinical presentation, the factors that are impacting your care, do you have a heart condition, why are you there, all of those pieces with the physician help decide what that status is. And that always isn't a decision from the physician. It is not? No. The physician may provide the order that they want the patient inpatient or they're placing the patient in an observation status. But sometimes it's passing that clinical information to your insurance provider and having another set of eyes looking at that. Okay. Okay. And would the patient or the family know or do they need to ask? I think it's important. I think it is important for people to ask. And interestingly enough, I think more people are becoming aware of their status. And the largest population I see that with is Medicare patients. Because Medicare patients, when they're inpatient, their financial obligation is very different than their financial obligation when they're in an observation status. Right, right. Mm -hmm. And so, as I understand it, insurances and Medicare won't necessarily cover or not covered to the same degree. Right. Their, their coverage may be different dependent on what is being communicated clinically, what's happening with them, if they're in an inpatient status versus outpatient observation. Correct. Okay. Now, is that information transferred to the family at that time when a final decision is made? Right. Um, in some instances, yes. For example, if you're a Medicare patient, it's the obligation of the facility to communicate to you that you're in an inpatient status. Additionally, if you're in an observation status, we're under regulation to communicate to you that you're in an observation status. And then there's another time that that happens prior to your discharge of that you are getting ready for discharge, here are your rights as a Medicare participant. But again, that's Medicare. That's just one piece of all the providers. So in some instances, the answer is yes. It's our obligation to communicate that preemptively. And in other situations, it's just answering a question. Whether it, my, my daughter was hospitalized. I didn't know they had her in a observation status until I got my bill. I didn't ever think to answer, ask that question because she's not Medicare or Medicaid. Yeah. It just wasn't even on my radar. So bottom line, any time someone is hospitalized overnight, I guess, and regardless, if they have not specifically, if the hospital has not specifically said you are an inpatient, you have been admitted, then the family need or the patient needs to ask. I think it's important for a family to ask the admission status and take the time part out of it. Because there's a 24-hour period where we have to communicate that to you. If you come to the emergency room at 8 o'clock at night, at 10 o'clock the next morning, you're still in that 
window where we may not even have had that discussion with you, I think, again, communication and being able to ask that question, knowing to ask that question, I think is the key. That there are different statuses in a hospital and ask. You know, and that would never have occurred to me. It would never. Again, look at what I do in my background, but it never was on my radar when my daughter was in the hospital, ever. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. So what kind of rights do Medicare patients have, say, if a doctor or the powers that be decide that this person will go home or be in observation and not be admitted? Or, I mean, what are the questions to ask? Well, if you're an inpatient and... Um, Medicare has very specific guidelines for both scenarios um, with regards to what that patient has privilege um, as far as understanding. They can actually request to have Medicare appeal their discharge. If they're in inpatient status and they're being discharged and they feel that their um, case needs to be looked at again, that they're not quite ready for discharge, yes, that's within their rights. And it's the hospital's obligation to communicate that to you in a timely manner so that you can think about that, be prepared for that, and ask. If the discharge process happens, and ironically, you think discharge end, if the discharge process happens, as soon as a patient enters in a a hospital setting, there shouldn't be any surprises. It should be very clearly communicated with the individuals that are involved in the care. Mm. Mm -hmm. You know, what you're talking about, in fact, my husband and I were talking about this particular podcast, and he wanted to be very sure that we talked about this point because um, as many times I, as I had been at, in hospitals with my mother, when my, when my husband fell and was hospitalized and was released so quickly and felt I mean, both of us felt completely like he was not ready at all to be discharged. It was only after we got home and he was reading his Medicare information that he realized, oh, I had a right to contest that. Mm -hmm. I had a right to, to have more time as everything was really being decided, as I understand. So that is a point I would definitely want because Medicare is going to be so much a part of the the population that we would be dealing with as aging parents and and even aging spouses and and you know whomever I really would want for people to understand yes exactly what you said you ha- you as a patient you as a family member have not only a right but you have a responsibility Correct. to ask the question because sometimes for a variety of reasons the hospital is not going to be clear about that they forget to say that or they think they've been clear and they haven't haven't, or they've just not been understood in the situation yes in the situation with my parents my mother was so stressed when they was coming close to my dad's discharge and I kept coming back to that point with her he's a Medicare patient 
what he has a right to, what they're responsible for disclosing to him, and how he can respond to that within her rights. And that gave her some power, so to speak. Uh, It gave her some empowerment to the voice to be able to say what she felt she was and was not prepared for. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Which is really important. Really an important point. And that and that is what's very important for healthcare providers to remember, although it's challenging sometimes to work with all the regulations of Medicare, that's that is the intent. The intent is to provide a framework so that we give good patient centered quality care. Things have changed so quickly oh that the public has not been able to keep up. And, and we can barely keep good, up. <laughs> I know it's good to know this because, again, like you said, with not knowing what what questions you can ask, it's it's critical that we start learning that and knowing when and where and how to ask those questions. Absolutely, and so often. I have even found myself at times thinking I am badgering the staff. I'm asking inappropriate questions, and I'm not. I'm asking appropriate questions. It just feels like, but I have so many questions. And I guess my takeaway is keep asking the questions Mm -hmm. because it's really okay. And if you don't understand, you need to understand because we as family members are going to be the ones who are taking our loved one home and making sure that they are cared for. One of a very, very powerful tool um, that caregivers and patients can have, if they look on the Medicare.gov website, there are discharge planning guides. And even if you're not a Medicare patient, um, that information still is a good framework, what questions to ask and how to prompt you to have more control in understanding what's happening with your care in a hospital and what you need to know going home. There's a I think it's a seven or eight page document and I sent it to my mom an email and said, I don't know if they'll give this to you, but you need to print this out and have it with you. This is going to prompt you to ask those questions that you don't know to ask or prompt you to think about something that you might not have thought about so that you don't get yourself in a situation where you're being discharged or dad's being discharged and you don't know what to do and somebody isn't there because you're right. Everything has changed so healthcare is no longer um, evolving at an evolutionary, this slow pace. Mm -hmm. It's so rapid. And it has really forced case management in the traditional sense to come out of the closet and be more in the forefront. Um, And that's where organizations like the one that I'm at have individuals that are very involved with you from the beginning so that you are educated and know what to ask, how to ask it, and so that you have that information. That's really, really good information. But say that again. What is the site to go to? Uh, www.medicare.gov. And that will give you all kinds of information all about All kinds of information. Questions. Discharge information. You can go to compare sites so that you can compare acute care facilities, nursing homes. Um, it gives you a, just a, a multitude of information. And again, not focusing just on the word Medicare, because if some of the listeners aren't Medicare, CMS or Medicare gives us those regulations, but it's also, it provides a very broad framework for how hospitals uh, practice as a whole, mm. even for our non-Medicare populations. Mm-hmm. So those, um, those regulations are things that we put in place regardless of who your payer is, a 30-year-old Blue Cross member, 
or a 75-year-old Medicare participant. That gives us the framework. So going to that website to get that information is good for anybody. Great. www.medicare.gov. Correct. Good. That's great, Janelle. Thank you so much. That's just critical to know. Um, What is a hospitalist? Um, Sometimes we know the doctor may see the patient in the hospital, um, but this doctor may not be the actual physician of our loved ones. So apparently it is a hospitalist, and a lot of people don't know what that is. Correct. Um, Twenty, approximately 20-some years ago, a specialty of hospitalists came around. And a recent graphic I saw was very telling, um, and it showed how there were, you know, a few hundred 20 years ago, whereas in this graphic went up to 2016, there were more than 50,000 hospitalists across the U.S. Wow. So, and and again, don't quote me, but approximately 75% of hospitals, including large academic or large medical centers, have hospitalists in place. And so they are specialists that manage your care in an acute care environment. So what does that mean? Hospitals aren't like they used to be, where if you get admitted, your primary care provider comes and sees you. There are times, because of the nature of health care, your primary care provider might not even know you're there until after the fact. So these are the people that manage the ins and outs of your health care during that admission. And then that information is communicated to your primary care. At times... They communicate with your providers while you're there, but that just depends on the situation. When you say they manage our health care, what are they doing exactly? Are they making decisions? They're making decisions with you with regards to how you, did, did you come in with chest pain? Have you come in with pneumonia? They're taking care of diagnosing you, treating you, managing your medications while you're in the hospital. Okay. And they also make the decision as to whether you're going to be outpatient, inpatient, sent home? With your provider, with your insurance provider. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good old okay. insurance. I know. <laughs> I would love to say that that decision is just the provider, but it's not. Mm-hmm. There are times where we really feel an individual should be one status or another, but we're being told that they need to be the alternate. Um, there's even a process where you can have a provider in the, hosp- the hospitalist speak to uh, a physician from the insurance company so that they can they can debate that mm-hmm. on a MD to MD level. does mm-hmm. not always come out in the favor that we want. Um, but yes, they're, they're, they're silent, but definitely involved. They're definitely there. Mm-hmm. So the insurance, and this is kind of a sidetrack, but I'm just curious. So when insurances insurance companies are are helping make the decisions it's really physicians and the who are employed by the insurance company it's physicians making the decision or nurses or, or I nurses. would say nurses and physicians I think they they're involved in that framework and those guidelines that the provider goes by if we want to request a physician to physician conversation that occurs but I can't I can't speak to whether all those decisions. Okay. Yeah. I, I thought I was hearing that it's always medical, medically trained people who are making those business decisions, but not necessarily. That's what you're saying. Okay. I, I just wondered. I mm. just wanted to clarify that. Okay. Okay. Um, we've, we've talked a good bit about discharge, but that is such a huge piece 
particularly for an aging person coming home because they can come in with so many different situations, in, in so many different situations. Um, we've talked a lot about it in some great information, but who helps or who can help with preparing the patient and the family for the discharge? And what questions should families be sure to be asking or the patient be sure to be asking before being discharged? Um, there's a couple um, different pieces to that question. So I'll start with the first with regards to it, it is the discharge process is huge. Um, and the discharge process and how it's managed is going to vary from facility to facility. I'm sure you found that with your mom's care, your husband's care. I know I found it from where the facility I'm at versus the facility my dad was at. But individuals that are involved with that, they're nurses, case managers, social workers, and how their role is defined is really organizational. Mm -hmm. But those are the individuals that are helping in that discharge planning process. Some facilities, it's more hands-on. And some it's not. But those individuals are required to be there and be involved. Um, And so what does a patient need to know? If they have questions about their discharge, to ask, who's helping with my discharge process? Who can I talk to? Are they called case managers? Are they called social workers? Who is that person that I could speak to? In my dad's hospitalization, he was there for 14 days. It wasn't until the 14th day that anybody poked their head out. I had spoke to the individual a couple times, and they assured me that they were addressing my dad's care on a daily basis. And I pointed out that Medicare requires that that be done with the individual. If my dad hasn't heard from you or seen you, how Mm. is he involved? Mm. He isn't involved. So individuals need to know that, again, those guidelines for Medicare say that that's a process that includes the family, the caregivers, and the patient. We're talking about discharge at this point, not mm-hmm. not medical care. No, but discharge. discharge. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so what their title is could vary from nurse to case manager mm-hmm. to social worker, mm-hmm. but facilities have those individuals and we're required to have individuals involved in that discharge process in an organization. So that discharge process really is starting, should be starting, and should have conversation with the patient or family before the last day. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Medicare actually states they, uh, there's, a, there's a code of conduct, so to speak. It's kind of our go-to Bible called Conditions of Participation. And those Conditions of Participation, actually, it's there, I, I looked it up so that I could speak to it exactly, but it states it's a state of stringent health measures designed to regulate hospitals and medical establishments to utilize Medicare aid. So Every facility that receives reimbursement for Medicare is actually required to adhere to those guidelines. And specifically in those conditions of participation is a whole section just on the discharge planning process. And it states which elements of the discharge process have to be in place. And most facilities don't just apply that to their Medicare population, just for ease. Mm -hmm. They apply it to everybody. What we do at Catawba for a patient, whether they're 30 years old or they're a Medicare participant, I shouldn't say just 30 because you can have a 30-year-old Medicare participant, but yeah. somebody who's non-Medicare mm-hmm. versus Medicare mm-hmm. is irrelevant. We apply mm-hmm. that discharge planning process to every individual. Mm-hmm. 
that's not the same at every facility, but that defines that discharge process. And no, it should happen according to the conditions of participation within 48 hours of the admission. If you're inpatient, they should have engaged with you and assessed what your needs are. Well, that's interesting. Just when I met you. (laughs) Just just like when I met you. (laughs) Yes, we go back a long way. We go back a long way. (laughs) With my mother. Exactly. (laughs) Fire at the hospital. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. So in those conversations then, those early on conversations, and certainly as the discharge gets closer, then... The, there's, there needs to be, should be, more conversation about what is at home, what needs to be at home. Correct. Both in terms of physical structure and exactly and assist, uh, supportive devices mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, as well as the capability of caregivers. Having that 360-degree assessment, coming in, introducing who you are, what your role is, assessing everything from one-story house to a two-story house. Do you have barriers with transportation, medication? Um, Do you have home health services already? Do you have durable medical equipment like walkers or shower chairs or um, even a pill planner? All of those facets to you as a patient or to a patient need to be assessed. Sometimes that conversation ends with, I don't actually identify any barriers. Do you have any concerns now that we've talked? I'll touch base with you over the next couple days. And so, and, and we'll see how it plays out. Sometimes if an individual has a planned admission, they come in for a total joint, they may have their walker or bedside commode or things that they already have in place at home. And the discharge planning is pretty much scripted out like we think it might be. Mm-hmm. But then again, maybe after surgery an event occurs or something comes up or there's a complication or maybe the caregiver that was going to help them at home all of a sudden fell and can't assist them. That constant reevaluation takes place. But that initial assessment should be evaluating everything. Um, and a lot of times that's just conversation mm-hmm. and sure. really... I'm very transparent. Do you have any concerns or issues versus what what I'm hearing? After talking to you, I didn't have any concerns. But now that I'm hearing you talk about that you live on a multi-level home, do you have bathroom facilities on the first level since you're not going to be able to take stairs? Those conversations and Mm -hmm. questions may come up. Maybe that individual has limitations to resources and they don't realize that there's help that we can help put in place until we have that initial conversation. And so, again, one of the themes I think that we have said is that the family has the right or the patient has the right to ask questions. Absolutely. So, again, even with this, if if a loved one is in the hospital for a couple of days and there hasn't begun to be any conversation about discharge and what might need to be in place, then it is the family's right and and really should. Obligation, yes. Yeah, in, in the name of safety and caring for the loved one, really should ask for that conversation to begin, ask who would be the, the case manager or the person who would be helping with that and, and ask for a consultation, ask for a conversation with that person. Correct. Good to know. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> because it doesn't always happen. It doesn't. It doesn't. I mean, and again, knowing what I do, when I spoke to the individual helping plan my dad's discharge, what she had in place, my question was, have you met my mom? Because she hasn't left my dad's side, and she can only use one arm. Sure. So, yes, it is an obligation of a family member, loved one, patient themselves, ask. You have every right to ask. Again, it comes back to even the answer to the very first question, communication, whether it be with your family preemptively um, or when you're in the healthcare setting, communication. Janelle, this this is excellent information. Thank you so much. Is there anything, any last final words or anything else that we haven't covered that you feel like ought to be covered in this? I think really just emphasizing having the hard conversations that people sometimes don't want to have. And I can speak to my parents' age. Um, they, they're going to follow what the physician states. They're not going to ask questions. They don't necessarily feel they're empowered to ask questions and not wanting to talk about the what ifs, not wanting to talk about who can make decisions. Um, Again, personal experience, my mom was convinced that my sister and I would have dual responsibility for health care, power of attorney, and financial power of attorney. That was great for her to think about. In practicality, that's very difficult to manage. A disaster. It's a disaster. It can be. But it can be. Um, so have those difficult conversations. Have open communication. And it isn't easy. Um, but I yeah, think that's the big message. That's so important. Mm-hmm. And to have it when both of you are open and willing to discuss it. Sometimes parents aren't willing to discuss Correct. these things. And sometimes you just have to sort of plant the seed and say, Mom, I need to have this discussion at some point in time. Have you thought about this? And Mom, who's going to be tight-lipped and say no, and we don't need to discuss it. Exactly. You've planted the seed by just saying that mm-hmm. and then come back at another time when you two of you are laughing or carrying on or you know, you're both still feeling good about mm-hmm each other so that you can move on to these difficult topics exactly. that's really you're you're exactly right mm-hmm. so really difficult point. and and try to do them before oh, yeah. you're yes. in the hospital before yeah. it's the emergency yeah. before yeah. it is needed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. exactly yeah. yeah thank you thank you thank you thank Janelle. you Janelle thank you for having me and Susan thank you for mm. being part of this my pleasure also. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are grateful to you who have listened to this. And we certainly hope, Janelle, Susan, and I certainly hope that you have learned something that you didn't know so that you can be a more effective support and advocate to your parents or to your loved one. This program is part of the MESH network of online shows and podcasts. You may learn more about the MESH and check out the other programs available for free at www.themesh.com. On that site, you may also send us a question or a recommendation for future show topics using the Contact Us button. We also encourage you to find us on Apple iTunes, where you may subscribe to our show to make sure you receive all future episodes automatically. You don't want to miss any of these. You will find a link to the MESH website on our ACAP Community website. So for more information about ACAP Community, our website is www.acapcommunity.org. That is ACAP as Adult Children of Aging Parents, www.acapcommunity.org. Our toll-free number 
is 877-599-ACAB or 877-599-2227. Or you can always email us at info at acapcommunity.org. Thank you for being part of the podcast. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.